Modern Football Group. Same game, viewed differently. Good evening and welcome to a special edition of the Modern Football Group podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Barrow, and on this particular episode, we shall be discussing and debating the largely topical and controversial event that is the Super League. And for our listeners who may have been on the moon in the last week, it's a newly created hybrid league, a midweek competition consisting of 12 of Europe's leading football clubs. Governed by its founding clubs, it was intended to have another three clubs join at a later stage had the project continued its traction. The original founders consist of AC Milan and Arsenal, Atletico Madrid, Chelsea, Barcelona, Inter Milan, Juventus, Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Real Madrid and Tottenham Hotspur. But given an accumulation of public decry, fan disorder, government intervention and a number of other criticisms and issues, a number of clubs had officially withdrawn from the prospective competition, leaving its future in tatters. So today on the podcast, we are going to focus on the opinions of working and educated Gen Z professionals with a strong passion for football to understand their views. The layout should consist of three segments. There's factual rounds, open floor discussion, and finally, closing statements. For the round segment, each guest is going to provide us with their evidence-based insight to each of the following topics. The competition structure, the financial reward, the impact on the domestic league, and for the purposes of this podcast, the Premier League, the understanding of the governance in the Super League, and the impact on globalisation. The open floor discussion segment will consist of a debate around a particular topic associated with the dialogue, and then concluding with closing arguments to understand our guests' overall opinion. So to get things kicking off, I'm joined by Albion Nuridini, Ethan Bolt, Anna Chapman and Jasper Plunkett. Welcome, lady and gents, and thank you for being a part of the podcast this evening. Hi, Jordan. Hi. Good stuff, good stuff. Now, for the factual-based discussion of the topic, I'm looking at around 40 to 60 seconds worth of insight from you before moving on to the next person, if that works for you guys. So let's get started. So as mentioned, the first topic will be the competition structure of the Super League. Albin, I'll let you to go first. What is your understanding of the structure and how it works? Well, there will be 15 founding members, as you said, and they do not leave the league at any stage in the initial deal that they sign. There will be five teams that qualify. So while there will be five additional teams that qualify, rumoured to be one from each of the five countries of England, Spain, France, Germany and Italy. So I personally believe that it's, it's a good idea for this competition structure to go this way, simply because... Under the normal circumstances of the Champions League, we have seven to eight clubs, including the big six, who fight for four Champions League places. Whereas with this Super League, it allows teams that maybe aren't as big as the top six, the likes of Leicester, West Ham, Wolves, to fight for a spot in the Super League, which would be amazing for them. Fabulous insight. Thank you for that, Albion. And Jasper, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I, I agree. The uh, information we've been being presented is that there will be 15 clubs, 20 teams selected overall with five spots up for grabs in uh, two leagues of 10 sides. Um, yeah, uh, my opinion on it is that um, the European football landscape is bigger than the top five leagues. And with this format that's being proposed, you're not going to see the likes of Celtic beating Barcelona at Celtic Park 2-1 with 11% possession. Like Long, long gone are those days of... Uh, like away days for small fans in smaller countries um and also it's a lot more stress on the players having to play more fixtures as well um 
and it could see the departure of competitions that they're not really fans of, like the Carabao Cup, but they are part of uh, English football. Absolutely. Interesting points there, Jasper. Thank you. And Anna, what do you think? Yeah, so obviously, adding on to what's been said previously, the competition guarantees a spot for the founding members, as we said. It could, as we know, Arsenal maybe not performing as well recently, but it could give them a chance to compete on a global scale with the likes of Real Madrid, Juventus, Barcelona, etc. Again, midweek fixtures also are opted, allowing the preservation of a domestic match calendar, traditionally on the weekend. However, the guarantee of playing in Europe every season could be considered unhealthy. If it was to go ahead, how would this impact the league as the founding members are meant to be f- competing every year? How would, how would this affect their drive to get as high in the possible as in, in the league? Yeah, absolutely. The competitive sort of stance of it is definitely in question with this uh, sort of new proposal in line. And uh, finally, Ethan, what are your thoughts on the matter? I think for me, they're only if you compare it to the current Champions League, they're only really suggesting to change the group stage so once you get past the group stage they'll still have a knockout competition with home and away legs um, with the final one game being in a neutral venue so they're really only looking to make it more entertaining earlier on because I think you could say some Champions League games currently are a little bit dull to watch and they're not as interesting so they're really only trying to improve it from the beginning so that we're not waiting until February March to get to the interesting uh, knockout games. Now, moving on to financial rewards. So naturally, the expectation was for some sort of significant financial gain for the clubs involved, thus providing a more than attractive incentive for them to sign up, especially with the backing of American investment bankers JP Morgan. You could see the commercial enticement there. The estimated amount of each of the founding teams was around a circa 3.5 billion or just over 3 billion in pounds sterling to join the competition plus in excess of 10 billion euros for an initial commitment period. So we're talking serious, serious money here. Anna, can you tell us a bit about any other potential revenues the clubs were expecting to make in this breakaway competition and any added thoughts you may have? I think the elephant in the room is kind of the initial three and a half billion that's going to be with all the clubs. Obviously, that's brilliant for any of the founding clubs because it's meant to support infrastructure plans and offset the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic which can affect even the biggest of clubs. However the short-term impact kind of leading on to our next topic about domestic leagues it could be negative. There's a long-term plan for uncapped solidarity payments in line with league revenues that I've researched as well to benefit the football pyramid but this initial lump sum of three and a half billion Surely, it, could it create a further gap between clubs who may not necessarily be able to offset the gap and don't have the stature of the 12 biggest clubs? That's a very good point, Anna. There's definitely that sort of concern around an ever-growing sort of seismic gap between what is already very rich teams versus, you know, all of the other teams in the sort of lower divisions. Um, no, excellent stuff. And what are your thoughts on this, Ethan? I think the crucial thing for me is we, we talked about the... Um, well, teams five teams each season can qualify through their domestic league. So say let's just take Leicester, for example, in that. They can qualify for the Super League and then let's say they actually go on and win it. They could be earning 50% less than Barcelona who got knocked out in the group stage because Barcelona are one of those founding members. And you think that's when it becomes questionable because how is that fair? I mean, yeah, of course you get a trophy and the you know, knowledge and a good achievement for winning it, but you're not getting the same prize pot and funding that they're getting just because they started in the first place so I think that's a bit bizarre for me and a crucial bit yeah absolutely 
Absolutely. And uh, what about you there, Albion? Obviously, the finance, financially, the founding clubs do really well initially with that three billion pounds that they each get. But I do feel, however, that one thing that's been overlooked is that solidarity payment. The two important notes on that is one, it is uncapped. So as the revenue goes up, hopefully, is what they're predicting as founding members, that as the revenue goes up in the Super League, that more will get people more will be paid back down the football pyramid system. And they are expecting that to be in the initial period, which was 23 years, I think they agreed to, it is in excess of 10 billion euros, which as which estimates approximately at 434.8 million euros a year that gets paid down in solidarity payments. Whereas UEFA's current solidarity payment as of the 1819 season is at 128.7 million. So you're talking two, three times, maybe even more in solidarity payments. That's going back to grassroots football, back all the way down the football pyramid. So how doesn't that help the lower league clubs that maybe they are struggling a bit, particularly during this COVID time? Yeah, interesting viewpoint there, Albion. Thank you for that. And uh, finally, Jasper, what do you think? Um, 12 of the clubs that have agreed uh, had a combined revenue in the 1920 season of uh, £4.8 billion, according to Deloitte's Football Money League. And uh, eight out of 10 of the earners were invited to the Super League with PSG and Bayern both refusing the initial invitation. Um, Since then, this season, revenues of these clubs were down 13% collectively, uh, partially due to COVID-19. The 330 million accept, uh, invitation acceptance is something that instantly we could see. Well, we would have seen this summer if they accepted that uh, um, could have pushed these teams away from their domestic competition immediately. With clubs like Arsenal and Spurs, they're just looking to rebuild at the moment, as well as the other teams just make themselves even stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, the 12 clubs that saw the decrease, uh, I believe it was a bit of an untimely announcement considering the state of the world at the moment. Many fans around the world have lost jobs, lost household income, and they're just seeing all this new money come into football. And the uh, general consensus could be that, like, they're going to move these games abroad. They're going to just try and get more commercial income out of the fans and not really consider the opinions of their fans in their home countries. No, extremely good point, Jasper. I mean, naturally, we've witnessed quite a few layoffs, certainly in the football industry, certainly when COVID has been at its sort of most aggressive. So I guess there are going to be plenty of eyebrows raised in connection to this. Um, Does anybody on the panel have any further comments or any contesting points they'd like to make to any of the other panelists? I wouldn't say. Sorry, sorry, Adam, you carry on. I was just going to speak about the payments for like the likes of Arsenal and Tottenham who maybe aren't doing as well in the Premier League and their ability to then suddenly balloon back up the table with a huge amount of money. If we look at the Premier League now, there's is been many seasons of the Premier League since 1992. There have only been very few winners in and of itself. Manchester United, City and Chelsea are multiple winners. But Blackburn, which won it right near, near the beginning. Liverpool have only won it once and Leicester have only won it once too. So with Arsenal, Man United, Chelsea and Man City being the main winners of the Premier League, this, this money that this extra money that they gain isn't going to make too much difference in terms of our our idea of a fairy tale story because the fairy tale story is so f- far fetched na- as it is in the first place that ultimately we're not going to see too much change in terms of who we believe is going to win the Premier League title anyway. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I, I would add, you'd mentioned the solidarity payments earlier on. It's it probably it probably overlap with the governance section we're getting onto in a minute. But it, it comes down to trust of, do we trust that these clubs are going to pay those solidarity payments back into reinvesting into grass football? Is that actually going to happen? Or is it going to turn out that they're keeping it to themselves or they're being a bit sneaky with how they're doing it? It's, it all comes down to, well, waiting and see if it was going to happen. There was, there was only one way to find out on that. But it is part of me is like, do I trust them in that sense? No, probably not. But then do I trust you for at the moment? No, I don't have, have any trust in them either. So it's a difficult one to form mm. an opinion on, if you get what I mean. Oh, no, I'd, I'd just like to comment on the uh, the fairy tale story. Even though it was a 5,000 to 1 chance on Leicester winning the league, um, there is the... the uh, the money that will come in for these clubs that are just automatically in, it will um, it will decrease the chance even more so of them potentially winning because even if they do get into the Super League, they're not going to be getting the same money that these clubs will be receiving for 23 years on their contract. So, yeah, that's what I'd like to mm. say. Uh, that's great, Jasper. Thanks for that addition. Can I just come back on that quickly? Just push can Albion. Go for it. Say that... Um... How do we know for sure that these clubs will intend to spend that money back into the team? Because there's been a lot going around that the reason for this Super League being created is because our the owners are money grabbing and they're just looking for money. So surely this would uh, like they're content with Arsenal, for example, with Kroenke and Arsenal being content with being ten for the moment and not investing too much. Will they have more money to invest in the club? Yes. But how do we not know that they'll also pocket a lot more money so then the club doesn't grow because the players don't, they don't buy players because they're pocketing all of that money? No, again, very valid, Alvin. Absolutely. Um, it's one of these tricky things about a situation like this, isn't it? Because it's now not, well, certainly in the immediate future, given the opportunity to sort of gain any further traction to develop and understand how this would look like in principle. It's only sort of down to this kind of speculative viewpoint that we're all, we're all sharing together to try and understand what we think may have happened or how they may have kind of dealt with certain potholes in the road to get to where they need to. But they're all very, very interesting viewpoints there. Um, and I think from a commercial and corporate perspective, you can see the allure of the fib, uh, forbidden fruit from a mile away. However, lost in plain sight was not only the dismissal with regards to the clear organic fabric that is competitive football that the working class and others have enjoyed for years it's the damaging impact a league of this nature would have consequently on the teams left behind and on that point jasper can you give us a bit more insight with regards to the type of impact that this would have left on domestic leagues yeah of course um we've already touched upon this in the financial section but it does shift the competitive balance as the rich will continue to get richer um, as long as they're not relegated from this Super League. Um, and it will potentially decrease the uncertainty of outcome in football um, in return for the top clubs being able to maintain themselves and attract more star power every year. Um, also, within regards to the rest of Europe outside the top five leagues, I saw a study by Van der Berg who stated teams like Ajax that could be in the ESL, but the proposed format is for the remaining five spots to go to other top five leagues. Teams like Ajax who have European heritage, potentially excluded from this league. Teams like Benfica and Porto as well. And um, yeah, these fans, well, these teams will, if they do eventually, they get one spot into the Super League, um, they'll create more of a monopoly in the leagues than they already do as they'll find it easier for them to attract new fans 
because they will be playing in the top competition in the world with not really a chance for the uh, other teams to do it as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point, that Jasper. There is sort of question around entitlement for teams to be in this league. I mean, is it a coincidence that all of them are on the rich list for the KPMG 2021 highest revenue? I don't know, possibly. Um, but there is definitely a shout from a footballing perspective for Ajax to be a part of it, absolutely. What are your thoughts on this, Albion? I just feel like domestically, not a lot will change. As I mentioned previously, we have very few winners that aren't the top six or the major clubs. So clubs will still want to be the champions of England. I, I don't believe that will suddenly disappear because the whole aim of this Super League wasn't to replace domestic leagues. In the letter that the Super League released on that Sunday night, they mentioned very clearly that they still want to be a part of the domestic leagues. So they, they still want to play those games on the weekend, but they want to replace the Champions League with their own Super League, which is almost a bit like a step above the Champions League. And just because the creation of the Super League came around doesn't necessarily mean that the Champions League and the Europa League were going to get scrapped. The teams like we were mentioning, Ajax, Benfica, Porto, they still have the ability to play in the Champions League. UEFA wasn't going to stop the Champions League. So I feel as though maybe they could play, they could still play in the Champions League. There wouldn't, maybe there wouldn't be as much money in it. I'm not too sure. That's up for debate. But I feel as though that the Super League was just for the, the strong teams in Europe as such, the big powerhouses of Europe to A, get more money and B, give more, a more appealing product to the fans. No, it's a very, very interesting point, Albion. Thank you for that. Um, and what are your thoughts on this, Ethan? I think I'm probably in agreement with Albion because you, know, you look at just outside the Premier League, at the EFL in general, if you're a Bradford fan, Bolton, Wigan, you're still going to go and support your team. That's not going to be changing at all. So it's only really the Premier League that could potentially be affected. I think if you say the revenues are going to be higher in this Super League, is there a risk that the toast, those clubs involved are going to focus on that and therefore use the Premier League as kind of like a a youth competition for some of their players or using fringe players in the squad are not taking it as seriously, potentially. But then again, it is still the top division in the country. And so you go, you are going to want to win that because it is equally as an important trophy as the Super League might be. So it's a difficult one. Again, we have to, it would have to be a case of wait and see, you know, it's mm. very difficult, but there are those potential things that could happen. And what are your thoughts on this, Anna? Yeah, my opinion is kind of like an amalgamation of what's already been said, but the only thing is what I think is a grey area at the minute. How does this affect the Champions League and Europa League? Like Because a team could win the Premier League, which traditionally would be a Champions League spot. Obviously, it could bounce down. But then saying, then saying the lesser performing teams in the Premier League who are guaranteed in the Super League, e.g. Arsenal, e.g. Tottenham, Arsenal could finish 10th one season, guaranteed European football. How does that affect the sort of, how does it affect the European spots? And also, speak moving on to kind of the women's game aspect, which coincidentally is called the Women's Super League, it gives an opportunity for the women's game to improve on a global scale. Because it was mentioned in, I was reading Arsenal's statement, it was mentioned that a corresponding women's game would be created. Currently, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe there's only a Women's Champions League and not any further European competitions. So surely it's an addition to the Super League for the women allows the, the game to globalise even further. 
Absolutely, Anna. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a whole question around sort of the integrity of the game, the competitiveness, all that sort of thing, too, um, which is also a very sort of um, food for thoughts mind process. Um, does anybody else have anything to add on this point before we move on at all? Yeah, I do. Um, before financial fair play came into place, um, teams like Chelsea and uh, Manchester City, they didn't have a strong position. Well, Chelsea were average. Man City weren't a big team. They weren't considered a big team. But they were able to invest lots of money into their team at the right time before these regulations came into place so that their team can be in the, is now in the best position. They're at the top of the money league. They have massive revenue, multi-club network systems, and they 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 um yeah they just get super league qualification, and it disregards disregards the heritage or previous competitions where you've seen other teams win it that will not be invited to the super league as a founding member. No, that's a very good point. Very good point. Um, I guess there's also question around this sort of thing. Was it inevitable? I mean. As you all know, 20 February 92, when the Premier League first incepted, there was a similar sort of argument around the impact of domestic football. What's going to happen from there? It's where almost the elitist clubs had then thought, actually, we're beyond Division One. We're going to create our own league and so on and so forth. Is this just another sort of rotation in that sort of generalisation of the sport, sort of taking the next leap or not? Who knows? Um, but I guess following on from that, um, another key point for our viewers and our listeners to learn and understand is the governor's perspective. So hopefully to dispel this particular buzzword that some people may hear in a working capacity and others. From a footballing perspective, governance helps demonstrate accountability, transparency, coupled with strong leadership, direction, supervision and process, all of which must be robust through policies and procedures with an overall consideration of the core principles, i.e. doing things the right way and making sure the correct things are being enforced from a fair, reasonable, equitable and impartial viewpoint. So, Albin, can you give us a little bit of insight regarding the expected governance around the Super League, if it were to go ahead? By the looks of things, the Super League would almost run itself with those 15 founding members being at the high table, so to speak. And as you mentioned about it being fair, about it being representative and accountability, if you are 15 founding members, their best interest would be to for the league to run as smooth and as efficient as possible. They would have no reason to, as quote-unquote, stab each other in the back when they're all in it together. So ultimately, I think them governing themselves might be the best way to ensure impartial decision-making because they all have the same accountability and ultimately it would all affect each of the 15 founding members' pockets if there was a bad decision made or if there was any money taken away for example whatever the case may be so every decision that they make will be between themselves for the benefit of themselves and when you're making decisions in that manner with no ulterior motives then you'll ultimately make the best decision because it impacts you and when you're making decisions for yourself then you, you won't make any mistakes in that regard. Yes, yeah, considered point, Albin, absolutely. I guess that's certainly one way of looking at it. I mean, I guess somebody could also contest that if you're responsible for your own devices, if there was, say, a dispute between two of the, the teams internally, 
what will the other founding members decide? How will that be demonstrated? What is the governance procedure for that? Will they then have to seek external counsel to try and get to the bottom of a, a dispute? Or is it down to voting rights? Or will Florentino Perez have the deciding vote? So there's all these sort of factors that come into the governance piece, um, which is extremely interesting for sure. Um, Anna, what are your thoughts on the governance of the Super League? I think I agree with Albion, but I'd also like to add for me, one of the key elements of governance is equitability and inclusivity but you're only inviting five clubs to perform each year the rest of the 15 are guaranteed to be there so it's up 75 percent of the teams you're going to see in the competition every year although that doesn't necessarily affect the teams in the competition who are not going to get relegated the founding members surely it's and it, like with champions league you are kind you do know roughly what teams are going to get and but there is still an element of surprise like West Ham for example performing well this season they could get a European spot also when looking at sort of stakeholder theory and governance the whole point is that firms should maximise their interests as stakeholders and I think we can all agree one of the biggest stakeholders in a football club is the fans although they don't necessarily have much of a say in behind the scenes so surely for the SL to work properly and govern properly their opinions should be considered Absolutely Anna I totally agree with you for sure um it bears requisite of the uh, the sort of German 50 plus one model, doesn't it? Where the fans do have a seat at the table and a lot of the major decisions are subject to their approval, which I guess is one of the reasons why we saw Bayern Munich and Dortmund as one of the sort of initial two clubs that pulled out. Um, what are your thoughts around this, uh, uh, Jasper? As previously mentioned, we uh, understand that Real Madrid president Florentino Perez will be the president of the uh European Super, the Super League, I should say, the Super League, uh, also chaired by Agnelli and I believe John W. Henry of Liverpool, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, since the news early this week, Agnelli has come out and said that um, the project is no longer up and running as well, uh, which is not what fat or supporters of the, the Super League would have wanted to hear. Um, it's a clear split from UEFA's Champions League as well that will give more money back to the clubs. Uh, as perhaps they feel they can do a better job of running this, running the show than uh, UEFA and other governing bodies, or are they more concerned about their own pockets? No, it's a very good point. And uh, yeah, I mean, going from the original inception of it, yes, Agnelli would have been involved. And it's quite interesting as well, just on a side note, to see a lot of high profile exits that have come in light of this kind of uh, uh, losing steam, so to speak. Ethan, what are your thoughts around governance? I think. Ultimately, it's quite disrespectful towards UEFA from these 12 clubs because, on the whole, there are plenty of other clubs across Europe who follow the rules and regulations set out by UEFA without causing a fuss, even if they don't agree with them. But because these 12 clubs aren't particularly happy with the money they're getting from UEFA and the regulations around it, they've decided to kick up a fuss, essentially, and go and do it alone just because they've got the money and the power to do so. So I think it is very disrespectful how they've gone about it. And also just the way it was announced, you know, it was kind of, we are the 12 founding members to be, sounds like something out of Star Wars, you know, like they're part of the Empire. Um, so it's just it's very, very arrogant, you could say, how they, how they went around it. Yeah, there's there's certainly some lessons to be learned from all of this. I mean, certainly when you, you look at it objectively and you think, you know, these these people from an investment bank perspective and from a football club perspective are essentially, you know, whether it's a sort of self-entitled peak you know top level the people who are meant to be sort of the cream of the crop and to sort of make 
these mistakes at that level does sort of bear a lot of questions, um, which all of you have recognised just purely from being on this call at this present moment. Um, so no, completely agree with all of you. Very good answers. Um, does anybody have anything else to add around governance? I would, yeah. Um, I was kind, it's kind of in response to Ethan's, but the disrespect shown to UEFA, um, can you not argue that UEFA has kind of disrespected some of the clubs in a way over false promises, over uh, financial fair play? Um, and I, I don't like the idea that UEFA are the good guys in this situation because I don't think they are at all. Um, the new Champions League format, which we can get into later in the discussion, uh, is almost as bad as the Super League proposal that uh, was put forward this week. And uh, media outlets like Sky, who have vested interests in uh, viewership numbers, also were anti-Super League, maybe over fears that they won't get the broadcasting rights, but who knows. Excellent yeah, additional I, point. Yeah, I, I agree with Jasper there. You're right. UEFA are by no means the good guys in this situation. I mean, it's been, looks like there comes some kind of saviour because they've managed to stop this, but they're not. I think if you're looking at it, as an alternative to a Super League where would football go from here I think there needs to be a long hard look at how the whole game's run particularly in Europe from the top so top down you need to look at UEFA they need to reassess I don't think FIFA and UEFA have fully recovered from the Set Blair scandal and everything that happened around that I think they've still got a long way to go to get the trust of clubs and supporters fully so I think there does need to be some reassessing going on Great stuff thank you Ethan Albin just to add quickly that we, I think we sort of accept on this call that UEFA's governance maybe isn't the best at its, as it's currently con, as it's presently constructed. So why didn't fans give an opportunity for these Super League clubs to try it out? Maybe they could have done it better, but maybe they could have done it worse. And then in three to five years, we could have said, pointed to the evidence and say, look, you attempted to run it your way and it doesn't work we need to find a new way. Like, I understand that the Super League was such a big surprise to the fan base almost. And in a way, UEFA do seem like saviours in this case, but ultimately they kicked up such a fuss because they lose around 2 billion of revenue by these clubs leaving the Champions League and Europa League. So how were they motivated by the fans and their, the, the, the love of the game? Or were they motivated by their own pockets too? Mm. Yeah, it's food for thought, Albion. I mean, I guess there is an argument towards the sort of founding members of the Super League. Perhaps if this was produced or demonstrated in a different way, as opposed to, you know, sort of top level delivery, no players consulted, no underlining staff consulted, the way it was kind of projected onto people was very rash, very quickly. A lot of people didn't understand it. I think maybe you know, taking your point there, Albion, if it was conducted a bit differently and it was almost like a white paper that kind of said, here's our plans, this is our structure, this is what we're doing, this is what it looks like, this is the policies we're looking to engage, we're going to, you know, um, sort of change the way racism's dealt with, we're going to look at fines, we're going to conduct a whole reform, that sort of thing, then maybe that would have enticed some more buy-in. So potentially the way it was delivered could have had, well, pretty much a fatal impact on what's happened. Um, no, excellent points, guys. Thank you very much. Um, and on our final topic for this evening is globalization, which in short is the expansion of the sport worldwide. Seemingly one of the 
unofficial would be entries um, of the competition. So going with you here, Ethan, what likely impact would the Super League have on globalisation? I think you've got to understand that for these 12 clubs, 95% of their fan base is global. So only 5% of them actually domestic and live in the country where the team is. So there is a huge market and an opportunity for these games to be taken to the fans, essentially, because they never mentioned where they would play these matches. I know they talked about home and away, but there could easily be neutral venues for all games. So if you want to go take your game to, to Beijing, you could have easily have a full stadium there. New York, um, Indonesia's up and coming. Mexico as well so these are all these different countries that you can take the football to the fans essentially because you, you're you almost a little bit restricted let's take Manchester United you know I, yes they have a deep rooted history in Manchester that's started off from whatever but they don't need Manchester United supporters in the stadium necessarily I know that can affect atmosphere and a lot of people won't like that but you do have to understand that these clubs don't technically need those supporters for their revenue streams it's all coming from abroad so it can be taken anywhere you like, really. There is no limit to what can what can happen from here. Yeah, absolutely, Ethan. I mean, if you're looking at this objectively from a sort of commercial standpoint, of course, you can take any of these clubs pretty much anywhere around the globe and they will get the attendance, they will get the viewing figures, all of that that comes with it. Um, and in terms of your, your point around sort of locality of where these games will be played, obviously another... Uh, piece that wasn't sort of truly fleshed out but um, I know Modern Football Group actually did some very good research on this point in terms of you know the sort of distances between the existing founding clubs and the potential others in terms of them traveling to each other's stadiums and that was you know extensive so you know it's a, it's, it's a very good point. Um, Jasper what are your thoughts on uh, globalization connected to the uh, Super League? Well, as we know, football has grown worldwide exponentially since the uh, birth of the Champions League. So we have to do, give credit where credit's due. And now seems like the next level of uh, innovation in the eyes of the owners in the way of attracting international fans that make up the majority of fan bases um, now for uh, these European clubs. Uh, obviously, they've got this format from the uh, the NBA and the NFL. I think the NFL is almost three times as large revenue-wise than the Premier League. And even Major League Baseball is a larger league than the Premier League domestically. So I think these owners of uh, the foreign owners, Cronky, Henry and the Glazers, they've seen that this model works for uh, growth. Um, they see this is the best way to get more revenue. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, It's clearly been an adopted model which they have seen in the flesh adopted in other sports and it has proven successful um rightly or wrongly they seem to have kind of uh perhaps put the kind of identity of football to one side in the view and precedence of commercial profits um but again that's a that's a whole nother discussion in itself as well but no very valid point um and what are your thoughts on this uh, albion as the guys have said football is now global all these Super League teams have fan bases all over the world. And although there is potential for these clubs to then go play abroad, for example, and not play their games in their home stadium in front of their home fans, so to speak, there have been circumstances already where the these teams and UEFA have catered to the fan bases at home. An example of that would be Arsenal versus Chelsea in the Europa League final where the game was played in Azerbaijan in Baku, 
which was a pain for the fans to get, which was reported that it was a pain for the fans to get to. But that game was at midnight. Now, under normal circumstances, no game is ever played at midnight because that's just an irresponsible time to play. But it was played at midnight so that it was convenient for fans here at home to be able to watch those games. So would it be a possibility of that games would be moved by time in order to consider the fans here at home too? So although the idea is that they're leaving the home stadiums, they may be potentially able to move time slots around so that they have the opportunity to play for a convenient time for their fans here at home. No, completely, Abin. That's a that's a that's a very true point. I mean, I guess we've got to look at this from you know both sides of the fence. So I guess if they're focusing on a consumer centric offering, which would then you know adapt the times to suit the consumer, you know what is the contrary effect that that may have on the players in terms of their sleeping schedule, their energies, their patterns, all that sort of thing. But it's a, no, it's a very valid point. Absolutely. And finally, Anna, what are your thoughts? I think, like we said before. We already know that the Super League includes some of the biggest teams in the world. And like you said earlier, Jordan, about Modern Football Group conducting a study on travel times, we found out that Real Madrid would have to do 85% more travel than Chelsea just in compared to the 12 teams, not including the rest that may be introduced. And an infographic that was put on the Modern Football Group chat not too long ago says that the 12 teams have more social media followers than the rest of the rest of the clubs in the domestic leagues combined. So one way in which this could globalise is the reluctance of it being called a European Super League and instead being called a Super League. So five global teams could be asked to compete rather than within Europe. So as you said, with the like player welfare, this has an impact on it. Things like jet lag, although they are athletes, it will evidently hit. And increased recovery times for weekends and domestic matches would have to be considered if they ever decided to include global teams rather than teams within Europe. Brilliant. Great answers, guys. Great insight. Thank you all for your contributions and thoughts on our topics this evening. Now, we move on to the open floor discussion segment. As we have seen very recently, there has been fan uproar saturated all over social media pages about their feelings towards this potential competition. And notwithstanding this, a very recent point made by Man City's Ilkay Gondwan by way of a tweet where it appears that he's taking a bit of a swipe at the new Champions League format and suggests that a lack of consideration for players and compares the Champions League as a lesser of two evils when compared to the Super League. What is everybody's thoughts on that? You have the floor. I do agree with uh, Ilkay Gundogan here that the players, I think it's out of order how the players weren't, uh, they weren't told about this or even the manager, I think the manager should have been told at least in uh, this decision making. Um, but the Champions League, new, uh, new format of the Champions League is a four-team expansion to uh, 36 teams with uh, elite clubs also who fail to perform in their domestic leagues can qualify through their UEFA coefficient ranking, um, which means that their domestic success one season may not matter if they've performed in Europe consistently for the past few years. The new UCL format is also a, a league system. Um, replacing the group stage where each team will play 10 games in the opening stage, which is four more than the current format. The top eight sides then qualify for the knockout stage with teams finishing 9 to 24, competing in two-legged fixtures to make the last 16. So essentially you've got another round of 32 in the Champions League with teams fighting for those spots in the quarterfinals. 
So it's almost a similar concept rebadged and remastered, essentially. Does anybody else agree with Gundawan's approach here in terms yeah, of the welfare of players? Yeah, I do as well. I think, let's be honest, the, in any normal business outside of football, the managers, I would believe, would at least be consulted about a change that was going to be implemented. I think the new format of the Champions League, like said, is the lesser of two evils, but in no way should that be... You need to consult in order for a success or an imp implemented thing to be a success. Great stuff. And anybody else at all? Or does anybody disagree with Gundogan's approach? No, I, I don't. And I agree with Annie. You know, essentially, the bosses of these clubs have made a big decision. That's a, a huge decision. It's not just like something small. It's a massive decision. And they've then sent their, their staff to go out and face the questions. And, you know, it, that, that's not fair, is it? That's just the fundamental way of not running a business you know the opposite of what should happen but I do I, I can see where Gundogan's coming from as well because player welfare is important and we've seen a lot of managers and players in recent years saying that there's too many games which why well, there was the introduction of a, a Premier League winter break obviously that didn't happen this year but last season that was in effect so it looks like they were taking steps forward to help that and now they've taken two steps back because they mm -hmm. want to play more games again so yeah I see completely where he's coming from so let's um let's spark some controversy into this then. So let's say, you know, I'm a person who doesn't watch football too much, but I'm completely aware and alive to the money these players make a week, their bonuses, all of these financial rewards that they get for playing 90 minutes of football in comparison to sort of, you know, the everyday average Joe. What would your thoughts be? in terms of, well, you're on X amount of money, you should just get on with it. What's the harm in an extra game when you're earning £200,000 a week? What What's your thoughts around people who may have this sort of mindset? Do you tend to agree with them? Do you get their point? Or are you completely against it? I, if I can speak to that, I think as I'm, I, I think we're all in agreement here about Gunungan being right. I think the most important thing to consider, though, is that in football nowadays, these lot have these teams have big squads, and it is on the play on the managers just as much as it is on the players to rotate, so that is it becomes a tactical game with rotation almost. Like, should I play this player on this day, knowing that I've got a game in three days? Is that game just as important as the game that I'm currently playing? So it it adds another tactical edge to football almost by having to play a game of can I how can I afford to play this player in this game knowing that they might get fatigued they might get tired and they have a game in 72 hours so I think it's not fair to have that assessment that just because they make so much money that they they should be doing certain things that's the way the world works the way the western world works with capitalism so us as fans contribute to their wages by turning up to football games and paying the amount of money that it does for a season ticket, for a shirt, for a scarf, for food and drink at the stadiums. Like all of this stuff is what contributes to the amount of money that footballers get. They don't just come up with money out of nowhere. Yeah, and kind of adding on to that, like I have this argument with my mum a lot of the time, like the money wouldn't be in the sport if it couldn't be in the sport. Like, there's no reason why a Bamiyan could get paid up to 350 grand a week. There, yes, there is because the money's in the sport. Like Albion said, we pay to go. We pay to go f up to 50, 60, 70 quid per match if you're not a home season ticket holder. You pay 80 pound for a shirt. 
etc and also it's like it the money's in the sport so it needs to be considered the player welfare it does need to be considered because the calendar already as it is can get congested we know that especially with covid and the pandemic the games are being having to be played closer together some teams have had to play a game with only 24 to 48 hours resting time i say in quote marks so yeah that's kind of all i have to say on that to be honest ah, it sounds like everybody's very aligned does anybody have any sort of um further comments to add to this yeah um i believe that for the players there should be some sort of players association that you see in american sports like the nba they've got a players association that is a collective body of players from each team and they have a voice within the league and they can get their discontent out in the air and they can give praise where it's due i think that idea would be a good one for european football leading on with that I think because currently this season, this is going to be a bit off topic, but the NFL are introducing a 17th regular season game and there is certain contentions with the players that is just too many games for us to play. So what if there was a provision where, as Jasper said, they come collectively, form a union, and then say they can only play a maximum of two games a week? If that was something that the players negotiated with owners, with ownership, or that they can only play a certain amount of minutes in a week, could that be something that we see to help the players and also allow for clubs to still have their players out on the pitch? Mm. It definitely could be a, a very sensible concept there, Albin and uh, Jasper, because ultimately, you know, a lot of the owners without sort of basing a generalisation, but they do look at their players as assets. And ultimately, these assets serve a purpose to this business, it's sustainability and it's financial sort of growth in years to come. And often you've seen sort of influences where, you know, managers won't like their players going on international duty because they feel that they're too tired and they won't contribute and perform domestically. So I guess there is a good argument for that, certainly going forward, and maybe something that they could potentially uh, enact within their playing contracts or um, whether it's something that could be sort of regulated, who knows? But it's it's definitely a very good and valid concept to consider. Um, but that's great. Yeah, thank you very much. And just one for me, guys, personally, because um, I'm keen from hearing from you because you essentially fit this demographic. So regarding Florentino's, uh, Florentino Perez's comments about 16 to 24 year olds not being interested in football, assuming this is within the context of watching it, is he right or is he wrong? What are your thoughts as the sort of unofficial representatives of this, uh, this demographic towards that comment? I think he's probably got a point. I think when he says that, I don't think he means supporters going to matches because there are plenty of 16, 24-year-olds who will go to live games in the stadium. I think he's probably more talking about the ones who are watching at home like we all do with Champions League, for example. And I've got to give it to him, even myself, when I'm watching a Champions League game such as Bayern PSG last week, you're kind of like, well, this game is pretty much decided now unless Bayern do get a goal from somewhere. And you do kind of, you get distracted. You're like, I went on Twitter to see what other people were saying about it. I had a bet on, so I checked that as well. So you do kind of lose interest in the match a little bit. So I think, although it's taken a little bit out of context, I don't think he quite means it in the way it was presented, but he's probably onto something. Okay, okay. Does anyone else agree with Ethan's thoughts there? Yeah, I do I do agree with Ethan. Uh, speaking from experience, I well, my club not being in the Champions League does sometimes discourage me to not watch the Champions League, um, especially in the group stages, because... Some of the games can be quite drawn out and boring. Um, 
but people are people our age are finding other things to do there's been emergence of other sports like the nba is doing a fantastic job in europe at the moment with their development they've got a game every year here as well before covid um for kids to love video games these days they're on twitch tv watching live streams of people play games and mm. i think as did mention that the emergence of video games has decreased the uh viewership of people in our demographic yeah okay interesting anna do you share that same view yeah i can probably speak from a different perspective being the only female in the room i think there's a lot to do to get more females interested in sport personally like i've been to i'm an arsenal fan as some of you know i've been to games before and i've been the only woman in my block Mm -hmm. like so there's been no one else around me apart from men so and I've had I've been to a game. The last game I went to, and the last Arsenal match I went to was over a year ago now. Obviously because of COVID, I was I went on my own, and I kind of had looks. People were looking at me saying, "What's a woman doing there here on her own?" And that's the kind of. So I think there is a like Perez said, there's a lot more to do to get people in my demographic, especially, but women as well, getting into sport because at the moment I feel kind of excluded. It's like people are shocked when I know a lot about football. Like people, because mm. obviously traditionally football is as it is a man's sport. So I do definitely agree with the statements that he's made. Intriguing, intriguing. Albin, how about you? I mean, there was a report by the ECA released, and Florentino Perez, along with others, were part of that ECA that produced that report. So I think he comes from a place of knowledge. He comes from a place of understanding, and there are facts to prove his case. Like looking from a from we we are miq.com they have a graph here which shows the average time in minutes of viewership in the champions league and even for the final in the 2018-19 season the average viewing time was 73 minutes now unless something has changed football matches are 90 minutes long which means people are not even lasting on average the length of a football match so he did also mention about reducing football time length and there was a massive uproar about that as well. But he's got stats to back this up that say people are not, 90 minutes is too long for people now. We, our attention spans are decreasing. There are diehard football fans like all of us are on here, probably are, that are willing to do it. But we have, they have to consider the next people coming up. And the next people coming up typically seem to not be as interested as we are. No, that's great, guys. Thank you so much. I guess it's striking that balance between what is commercially effective for consumers now and those that are coming up. And what about, as he puts it, the legacy fans, people who are used to watching the 90 minutes and, you know, fully engaged in it? You know, where does that shift happen? Where can we accommodate both parties? Um, no, very interesting points, guys. And thanks for us uh, answering that for me. Um, got, it's intriguing to listen. I've got one more to add, if that's all right. Of course it is. Absolutely. Um, Go for it. I think it'd be good to use cricket as an example, because cricket's a, a great example of a sport that has diverged in the sense that we now have T20 matches. The IPL is massive and we've got the 100 starting this year as well, which is another format on top of that. So instead of if we were to change the sport going forward, trying to change the game itself, why not? Why do we not encourage five aside more and make that more of a big thing or futsal or seven aside? These shorter formats of the matches that of the sport that we all play already but why don't we give them coverage instead and a platform to build themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen petitions for people asking for Masters football to come back, which yeah. is all the ex-players, 
you know, playing indoor tournaments, things like that. Obviously, you're seeing esports grow a lot more. I think, you know, the concepts and uh, sort of parameters of football could change uh, quite a lot in the next sort of 10, 20 years. Um, but no, excellent stuff, guys. Thank you so much. Um, now we come towards the end of the show uh, where we take the closing statements from each guest. Um, Anna, we'll start with you. After all we've discussed on the show so far, can you tell me your closing thoughts on the Super League? Sum it up for me in about 30 seconds. What are your thoughts? I think my personal opinion of the Super League is different to my business opinion of the Super League. Being an Arsenal fan, I'd love to be able to play Real Madrid, Barcelona again. But I think personally, you need to earn that rather than get a guaranteed right to play them. And the competition as a whole, the whole point of competition is the unpredictability of it. Knowing that you'll probably like the split initially split of two groups of 10 you kind of can have a guess of roughly what teams you're going to play. The only unpredictability of it is going to be the five teams that are invited each year. And the suddenness of the announcement as well, moving on to a different, slightly different perspective, is probably the reason for the bad reception amongst fans. I reckon if it was implemented in a longer process, rather than saying on Sunday night, oh, we're part of the Super League now, that's probably why there was so much of an uproar about it. So more consultation needs to be considered if they're going to make it work. Yep, absolutely. I agree. I think that's probably where they uh, sort of stepped on the proverbial banana skin slightly. Um, what about you, Jasper? 30 seconds, sum up for me what you think about the Super League. Um, the, I think the introduction of the Super League this week has highlighted a fundamental flaw in modern football. Uh, football has been seen as a sport that brings everyone from all kinds of backgrounds together. and But as we know, has grown into a multi-billion pound industry where foreign ownership and demand internationally has reshaped the game that we love. Fans in England love to say that the game's gone, as a uh, statement, um, as they believe the sport is changing too much away from the game they've always known. But development of competition structures is a vital part in the growing of the game. Mm. Uh, I'm I, Myself, I'm, I'm not naive and I do understand that the game has grown immensely worldwide with fans all across the world adopting teams in Europe as their own. Uh, the proposed new Champions League format is one that I do not agree with either with teams being rewarded for poor domestic performance, just like the Super League. Um, a compromise must be found with clubs, fans and owners to ensure that we do not lose the levels of competition in our domestic leagues, as football is a sport that should not be solely concerned with 15 teams in a competition that cannot be relegated. Um, the uncertainty of outcome is why we love our sport, the highs of winning on the European night to uh, losing to Burnley away on a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that we're the way we're headed with uh, the Super League is that we will not be able to experience these emotions as fans like we currently do. Interesting statement there, Jasper, for sure. It, you know, I guess some could argue that maybe income over integrity was the kind of main precedent for the the inception of this uh, this Super League. Um, what about you, Ethan? Sum up for me what you think of the Super League in thirty seconds. I think the whole proposal and. What, how these clubs went about it. They fundamentally misjudged the mindset of supporters. I think they heavily overlooked that because what you've got to understand is each supporter feels like they have ownership of their club. It's actually the team they support. Even though they have zero say in the daily runnings of it, it's their club. And if you want to be successful going forward, I think you have to get them on board. And I think these 12 members misjudged that. In the future, I think there probably will be some form of a Super League, maybe a different name or slightly different format. I think it is event that it is going to happen eventually but they do there needs to be a proper assessment of the relationship between clubs and supporters mm. because i think they're at a bit of a crossroads at the moment and danger of going separate directions and it becoming all a bit messy and horrible so i think 
fans need to be on board with it. And they can be. You can encourage supporters to get on board with different ideas. They're not against everything. But they just need to go around it in a different way and make sure that they've got them on side. Um, Because otherwise I can't fully see it properly getting off the ground successfully without that. Absolutely, Ethan. Fans are the lifeblood. They're the reason the sport exists and it's the reason the sport is doing as well as it is. Absolutely. Um, And what about you, Albion? What are your thoughts on the Super League? I think the most ironic thing is that the Super League released their letter on Sunday night to get ahead of the new Champions League format, which everyone seems to hate. So if they had done a slightly better job of holding on, maybe just waiting it out a little bit and presenting it in a much better way, fans might have been able to get on board with the idea because there are points in there which really help fans all over the spectrum, such as the solidarity payments promise, which we don't we we probably might not know if that was going to be delivered or not. But if it was something that was delivered, four times the amount of money is not something that's like that's small. Four times the amount of money is a lot of money for improvement all over the football pyramid. And I think that their delivery of the Super League intentions was mismanaged. And that's why the fans had such a strong reaction against it. Do I see them trying it again, like Ethan said? Probably. Could it be soon? I mean, Perez came out yesterday and said it's just on it's on the back burner almost while we reevaluate fans' opinion, while we reevaluate our mm-hmm. processes and see if we can come about it in a new way that will make it more appealing to fans and everyone around the world. Great. Thank you, Albion. So there you have it, guys. Process, integrity, fan association and delivery. All factors that they could have considered a bit further in their delivery of this Super League. Well, that concludes the MFG podcast. Thank you to all of our listeners and our esteemed guests for joining us this evening. Be sure to check out all of our future content on our applicable social media channels. We've got it on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube using the handle Modern Football Group. Drop us a like, give us a follow, subscribe, tweet, retweet, all that good stuff to show us some support. And we look forward to having you join us again soon. Take care and be lucky. Thank you. Modern Football Group. Same game viewed differently.